I'm kind of one of those crazy idealists in a way, like I actually think you can create a better world and you can't do that in isolation. You can only do that together. Hello and welcome to Disability Done Different, a podcast by DSC where we have candid conversations about all things disability and NDIS. My name is Evie Norfell. And I'm Roland Norfell. And we are both recording today in beautiful Wurundjeri country. Our guest today is Michael Bink, who has over 35 years experience in the disability sector as a support worker, advocate and executive manager. Some of you may be familiar already with the work of the Ability Roundtable, where Michael has led its development and growth. If you don't know it yet, you will by the end of this podcast, but it is a benchmarking and data and service improvement company that's for and by the disability sector. But as I said, we're going to get into it a bit more today. Looking forward to that. And it's great to have you on the pod, Michael. Yeah. Hi, Evie. Hi, Roland. Great to, to be with you today. So, Michael, you and I have crossed paths many, many times now, back to the late 1980s when deinstitutionalisation was just beginning, right through to the conception and implementation of the NDIS. And one of the things I don't think I've ever told you is that I quite like you. You always seem to be trying to do the right thing. Right back when we first met when you were doing consumer advocacy work, I think that's the right language, and you still seem to be doing, doing trying to do the right thing. One of those people, you know, just doing your best. Well, that's lovely to hear that, Roland. I guess we always try and do our best. But for me, certainly, it's really funny. Like when I, I started out just as, well, just as, it's actually one of the most critical roles as a, as a support worker uh, back in 1986. And I really came in with no idea. I just was looking for a job when I was at uni, thought this might be a bit different. And when I started working, I, I realized a few things. One of them was that, and this is, you know, this is an obvious thing to say, but it's actually, you know, when you're young, you don't have much worked out. People with disability are actually real people with the whole range of feelings and insights and wisdom and doubts, all the kinds of things that make us human. And I kind of cut through all the, the weird mythology that we seem to build around people with disabilities and just people. And, but the other thing was I could actually see that they had a huge potential that was really untapped and often were living in circumstances where they were at risk because there's a power imbalance in services. And I kind of saw that really quite quickly, much to my surprise. I started out as a geologist of all things. And when I started the work, I was just going, oh, actually, here's a group of people who with just a little bit of support can actually go a really long way in life. And so that kind of, that is the thing that mobilized me. I was going to ask this question later, Michael, but I'll ask it now. When we first met, you were doing some really interesting work for the Spastic Society. It was then known. It's now Scope on consumer-facing work at Consumer Voice, and none of the big organisations were doing that sort of stuff. So what was it, and how did it come about? Because I think the then Spastic Society, now Scope, uh, there were some really good people working in it. It was actually quite a progressive workplace in many ways. There were lots of things, you know, that, that could have been done differently and better, like lots of service providers back in the day. But uh, there were senior staff in there who actually were advocating for a more central voice for people with disability of the decision-making of, of the organization. And they actually went about and you know, approached government to do a couple of things. One of them was to actually set up an independent advocacy group that was focused on people with complex needs, physical support needs. Uh, and they also argued that um, it would be good to actually have somebody who worked in the organization to be a liaison to support people in the service to actually have a direct connection to advocacy. And then within that, they also said, we need to be reforming the way in which we actually engage with people with disability. And we need to actually look at 
this concept of consumer participation, which is about making sure that people with disability who use services weren't just, weren't just like advisory, but actually were central and that their voices actually carried weight in the decision-making of the organization all the way through the board. And the reason why it came within the organization was not just as a group of well-meaning people without disability driving it, but they actually thought we should probably talk to people with disability who use our services and ask them what, what they think they want. So it actually was a really early example of starting with the voice of people with a disability and seeing where that took you. But that leads to a whole bunch of questions I want to ask, but one that immediately comes to mind is DSC is having its Christmas party at the Cunningham Dax Centre, and Cunningham Dax was a great reformer of his time, but when we look back on those times, which were pre-deinstitutionalisation, we tend to demonise everybody involved, yet they were some of the most progressive thinkers in a society that thought they were doing the right thing. And so I, I sort of want to crank that question forward. Where do you think we're getting it wrong now? We think we're doing the right thing. We're sitting in our society. What mistakes, what are we getting wrong now, Michael? I want to kind of start by saying, I actually think that we're doing a lot of things right. And, and at the heart of that is actually we've, uh, everybody's worked really hard to try and ensure the voice of people with disability is central. Now, I need to acknowledge a lot of that has actually been led by people with disability. I think that when you haven't experienced disadvantage, when you haven't experienced, you know, abuse and discrimination, uh, it's kind of hard to get it. And the people who are the, the receiving end of that, they have to be central. Uh, and I think one of the things that was really powerful about how the, say the NDIS emerged was that, you know, there was huge effort made to ensure that that voice was really, was really central. So I think we got that really right. And if you look at the things that are working in the NDIS, I think a lot of it comes back to that, you know, this assumption that we've got to make sure people have good information that, you know, we, we certainly support them to kind of ma maximize their capability, all those things. I think we've got really right. The things we kind of, the, the mistakes are probably more of the design mistakes, I think, rather than intention mistakes. Maybe the fact that was a problem back in 1986 as well. I think that the, the, the design, some design issues are actually the, the, the pragmatics of, of what society thinks it's prepared to spend. And, you know, for instance, the, you know, the, you know we have this concept of reasonable and necessary, reasonable and necessary, like it makes some sense to have some kind of overlay that people just can't get whatever they want because they think they want it, it actually has to connect back to making a difference. But there's a little bit of a kind of a rationing mentality that sits in that. Uh, and I think that that, that makes it, it, it challenging sometimes to, to ensure that people are actually funded to the level they want to be. Uh, the biggest issues are actually not about that. They're actually about, um, uh, this, this, um, concept that I know Bruce Bonner-Haiti, who, who led the recent review talks about, which is being the only you know, oasis in the desert, the only island in the ocean, that when we were building this thing, we actually let go of a whole range of really fantastic things that were happening at the state level which really around community capacity building, you know, ensuring that society has the capacity to actually, to, uh, to really allow and enable people with disability to actually be in society and, and, and to, you know, and to, to, to live their life in society without having to fight really hard for it. When I was driving here today, Michael, I was thinking about what I, what I know of you and it's this, these two sides of you that we've, we've just seen, which is that 
you're somebody who has very high regard for the disability sector and the people who work within it. And at the same time, you spent your entire career agitating for change. And at some points in your career, at the really pointy ends, I know you won an award early in your career for preventing crimes against people. And so, you know, you're somebody who has this really high regard for providers, even though I think you're also very sober about the many ways in which our sector can fail people. I don't know exactly what my question is here. I think it's something along the lines, Evie, I heard someone recently say, if you stay too long in the disability sector, you either get burnt out or cynical. And Michael, you're neither of those. Look, I, I, I think that if you're going to work in this sector, you just have to understand that things take time uh, because we're actually not just talking about, you know, making a service better. We're actually trying to change kind of the, some of the fundamental ground rules of society. Like people with disability were marginal, you know, for for millennia, many millennia, and it takes a while to kind of shift things. So you need to take that kind of that that take that longer view if you're actually going to do anything that's going to really last. So for me, it was always going to be a long term commitment. I mean, initially I was very impatient, actually burnt out (laughs) and had had to change jobs because it was all just a bit too close, a bit too raw, and I think that helped me to kind of recalibrate. And having done that, like, you know, it's actually quite a privilege to actually be part of this kind of big reform. And I don't mean just the NDIS reform, I mean the reform of society so that people with disability actually can take their rightful place alongside of, 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 of city in society. So that would, that for me, that was always going to be, that, that's my driver. And I, I guess the other thing is like, you know, I studied to be a geologist. I worked as a geologist for a while. Geologists, you know, take a very long view, like, you know, you talk about billions of years. <laughs> so, uh, you know, may, maybe there's that little part of the scientist in me that just understands that things, you know, you know, you, you know, uh, time scales are all relative. Yeah, compared to geology, we're moving at lightning speeds over here. Evie, let's keep going with the geological theme. And Michael, in terms of the big issues, the big stuff that's happened, and and I want to put aside the NDIS and deinstitutionalisation because they're the big picture obvious ones, but in your opinion, what have been the other tectonic shifts in the sector? I think one of the big tectonic shifts that I've seen is just that there is now much more acceptance of people with disability in society. You see this just in the everyday, you turn on the TV and the TV shows people with disability are, are there and they're not there as a token presence sitting in the corner of the screen. They're actually sometimes central, like they're the, the lead actor. You know, you're watching, say, the ABC and you have people with disability who are actually, you know, the, the, the news reporters. And that to me is really fantastic because that's just about and we're, we're not, it's not a token presence. We're not, we're not doing it to kind of feel good. It's actually, we're doing it because it's actually, it's, it's necessary and actually it makes it better. I've, I've always been a great believer that strength comes through embracing diversity and that includes people with disability. So to see, to see diversity reflected in, in the mainstream is really quite exciting. There's risks there at the moment. Like I think that we're struggling with diversity as a society and there's a risk of us going backwards. I hope that kind of our policymakers hold onto their courage and, and continue to kind of push, push us to be more progressive because 
being progressive seems to have led to a lot of really great things. I'm struggling to see what the horrible, nasty things might be out of being progressive. If progressive means you're inclusive and you're thoughtful and you, you prepare to let go of some of your power so that another voice, another perspective, another, another human can actually have, you know, be part of, be part of kind of that, that, that daily discourse. So Michael, you moved from geology to consumer voice, and now you've moved to data. Is, is there a thread, you know, that joins those things together or are you just bouncing around? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know. I think it's kind of, everything's kind of folded back in together. Like ge- geologists are scientists. Like you, you follow the science, you, you follow the insights that come from science. The, the work I've done in between kind of this new data, this more recent data work and, and, and the geology was really kind of realizing that science doesn't do everything. You actually need to, you know, it's really great to kind of deal with humans in in the very human, human context of, 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 you know, the delivery of services. You know, that's kind of the, in a sense, the real world that science can support. And this last job, this most kind of the car job I've got around the ability roundtable, it kind of feels like it's the bringing of those two things together. It's, you know, science and human service coming together. So for me, it, it kind of, it feels like the two halves kind of snapping together and going, oh, okay, so I can do that. So tell us a bit more about the, the roundtable, Michael. Tell us why it matters. So the Ability Roundtable is, is really a data benchmarking community of practice. And uh, it's focused around, largely around service providers, and it's about supporting service providers to be able to innovate and to, and to achieve best practice in delivering services to people with disability. And I guess at the heart of that is about outcomes, better outcomes for people with disability. So that's kind of the broad driver of it. What we try and do is we actually try and collect really good, robust data from service providers who participate in our benchmarking, give them really great reports back so they can actually see how they're performing relative to their peers on a whole range of different dimensions, but then to actually get people in the room to have a conversation about what does this mean? Okay, you know, you're doing better on this, on this particular measure than I am. How did you do that? And to learn from each other. The, so that, that idea of a community practice is really central to this. It's not just about data. It's actually about data to drive a conversation and to drive improvement. What's really exciting about it is that it's an opportunity in what's basically a competitive market for competitors to actually get together and stop competing for a bit to actually try and find how to do things better. And when the NDIS started, we were all pretty scared that the market nature, the competitive nature of, would destroy all collaboration. What's making the roundtable work? How come they're doing it? I think the reality is that even in the most competitive markets, there people do still actually collaborate on, on areas where, yeah, where they can. The, I guess one of the, the key concepts for me with the roundtable is this idea of the rising tide that lifts all boats. And that comes out of, out of out of competition theory in, in the management competition theory and this, this idea of, uh, game theory. And in game theory, this is kind of idea that, you know, you know, you can either all fight over the same pie and you're only going to get a little crumbs from the pie, or you can actually work to build a bigger pie or a better pie. And that's kind of, 
that's that, quite crudely, that's actually what this is about. It's like, you know, you, you can, you see, if it's just a zero sum game where you're always fighting against each other and competing, it's very hard for things to improve. Like you never learn because you never step outside of your organizational boundaries. If you actually can, if you can find a way to actually get out of your little, your, you know, your little rabbit burrow and, and kind of, and start having conversations with others who've got similar experience, you can actually find benefit for everybody. So the pie gets bigger, the pie gets better, everything improves and you don't have to go backwards doing that. The other thing is that human beings, if you, if you keep them apart, they actually get suspicious of each other. If you put them in a room, they actually go, oh, okay, we've got the same issue. I know she quite like you as well. Hey, I'm grappling with this. You know, what do you think? And then together you actually come up with something better. I'm, I'm kind of one of those crazy idealists in a way, like I actually think you can create a better world and you can't do that in isolation. You can only do that together. So Michael, there's a question I wanted to ask when we saw the first rush, like a gold rush of investors going into SDA. It seemed like an incredibly naive push by people who didn't understand the market they were getting into. They thought that the NDIS was um, largely a scheme for people in wheelchairs and they built a whole lot of stock which was inappropriate to people with cognitive issues. The data could have told them a very different story about what to build. Do you know, do you know how we missed the point? Do you agree that we missed the point? Uh, I think some certainly did. Uh, and I think that it was a bit of a gold rush mentality here. Like, you know, there's an opportunity, let's grab it. You know, there, you know there's, you know, guaranteed revenue streams because uh, government's underwriting kind of the risk really around participating in the market. So there's really good market incentives to participate and that's all good. But uh, yes, I certainly think that there was, there was not an, enough stopping and looking and actually trying to uh, find out who, who your customer is. It's really basic, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's one, it's, you know, business 101 kind of stuff. So yeah. with, with apologies to the, to the people who did that, yeah, mostly they were all, they were, they were, they were people who were, uh, they had to stop to take the time to actually see where, where the market is. Yeah. Like there's, there was this really big market of, of older people who were looking for yeah. to be able to age in place, to age in community, uh, and, and, and for residential aged care to not be, you know, a, a forced option in the same way that we wouldn't expect that for ourselves or for our parents. This has been great catching up, Michael. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Michael. It's been lovely to chat. Yeah, thank you both. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Do you know we have more than one? Yeah. Yeah, my girlfriend's not the only one who's left us a five-star review. So thank you to the other four people who have. <laughs> uh, or subscribe at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.